Hi, my name's Alex Kelly, co-founder of Bright Flag, and this is In-House Outliers, a podcast where I interview those who've taken unconventional paths and challenged conventional notions of how in-house legal should operate. I am delighted to be joined today by Ashley Adams to share her story. Ashley is an experienced legal ops leader and is director of legal operations at Contentful. Thank you so much for joining us today, Ashley. Thanks for having me, Alex. I'm super excited. Well, let's start at the beginning. What led you to studying political science in college? Oh, so if you were to ask my dad, he would tell you that as a child, I would debate anything. And I would probably debate a brick wall if it would debate back with me. And so secretly, I, and, and maybe not so secretly, I had always saw myself becoming an attorney. And I was in an interest in government and politics, and it just seemed like such a natural fit. When I was in high school, one of my all-time favorite teachers, uh, Mr. McDaniel, I told him, I said, one day you're going to see me on the Supreme Court. <laughs> one day. And so started studying political science and you know, got into it, really enjoyed it, got deep into political theory of all things, like, like classical political theory. And, and it was kind of dead set on either going into law school or going to get my PhD to teach political theory. And took the LSAT, did all the things, got the recommendations. And then something told me like deep down inside, no, don't go to law school. Don't take on that much debt. Even if the long-term financial gain you know, would be on the positive end. My 21 year old, 22 year old self said, don't go 80 to 90 to $100,000 in debt. It's not worth it. Especially when I had no debt from my undergraduate degree. I had scholarships. I was very fortunate, you know, to not have to take student loans out. And so I went into, I went to work, you know, I, I went right out of college and straight into work. That That's fascinating, Ashley. And I'm interested in understanding then you had kind of made that conscious decision that the risk reward of, of kind of pursuing law school and, and all of the costs associated with that just didn't make sense for you. What was your first job after college then? I went to work for waste management, the trash company. And sometimes I'll tell people, well, I, you know, I went to work for the mafia because that's kind of the underlying uh, thing in the United States around, you know, trash companies. And so I was a senior customer service representative, specifically doing billing and escalations. And so I had the angry folks on the other end of my line most days. And I will tell you, it taught me so much about empathy and people skills and understanding other folks' situations. A lot of people don't see trash as a service like they would water or electricity. And you know, when they don't pay, they don't get trash pickup. And so you'd get these angry people on the other end of the line and they would just be yelling. And sometimes I would sit there and say, okay, it's not you. It's not you. It's not you. Be kind, be respectful and help them get through their situation. And nine times out of 10, I was usually pretty successful at doing that. <laughs> I suppose an extreme experience, which probably makes liaising with lawyers, with, with finance teams, with law firms feel like a walk in the park compared oh, to yeah. so that. Is, 
you know, it, it's a breeze, you know, <laughs> compared to having somebody yell at you over the other end of the line for nothing that you did. Yeah, oh, that that's gas. And, and having Tony Soprano as a boss. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what then actually led you to Nissan? So my last role at waste management, and I had a couple of roles there outside of customer service. Thankfully, I had a really wonderful leader who saw something in me that I don't know that I saw in myself at the time being so young. And she was like, hey, I need you to go talk to the VP of our area. He has a job that I think you'd be really good at. And it was in the construction division. Oddly enough, I was working at a recycling center and doing all the reporting and creating the reports for like lead and green builds and all the certified building that they do around here in Nashville. And so a recruiter from Nissan called and said, I see you're in recycling and we have this role. Do you know anything about catalytic converters? I said, nope don't know a thing about catalytic converters. And I really didn't at the time. And we're gonna be taking materials and recycling them out of the converters and putting them into new catalytic converters. It's a brand new program. We've never done it before. It's a sustainability initiative. And I said, yeah, sure, I'll go interview. Like, why not, you know? Um, and that was the pivot into Nissan. And it sparked an eight year career there, which I mean, I got the opportunity to do so many different things as a result of that one phone call. Obviously, that's a very different working environment. I imagine Nissan, a global organization, <laughs> a very different way of doing things. What was your kind of initial reaction to that or recollection of, of what it felt like working in an organization like that? In my, I guess I was 23, 24, I was like, whoa, I've made it. Yeah. I've hit the big time. I am in corporate. Holy smokes, here I am. And it was just, it was so much learning. Like I really took the opportunity to learn from everybody because I knew nothing. Yeah, I drove a car, took my car to get oil changes and tire rotations and the things you're supposed to do, but I knew nothing about vehicles and the process of making a vehicle and what goes into the business side of an automotive company. And so I dove in and I learned. And I think that that proved really well for me was just being open to learning. How did your role then at Nissan evolve over time? So the precious metals recycling catalytic converter role was very successful. My team and I actually won an award for it. And so it got some recognition. And one of the senior managers at the time that I was you know, that sat on, sat on my floor. He's like, hey, I have this other role that I think you'd be good at. How do you feel about collision? Inclusion parts and marketing those and working with dealers and all that. I said, yeah, I'll do it. You know, I was very open. And I think that's been one of the biggest things in my career throughout is that I've been open. Somebody taps me on the shoulder. Hey, we have this thing. We don't know if we can get it off the ground. Would you be interested in seeing if it will work? And so I think the curiosity of seeing if something will work and trying to prove it out has worked really well for me in my career because I'm just, I'm not afraid to take a risk. I spent a couple of years doing marketing with our dealers and SEO strategies and optimization and getting them to buy collision parts from Nissan. And then I got another tap on the shoulder. 
we have this really confidential project. And I was interfacing with legal a lot and that's kind of where it ties in later. But we have this other project, we want you to see if it will work. Super confidential, our global CEO at the time, I won't say his name a little, <laughs> he's got a little bit of a tarnished reputation now, but this is something he really wants to do. Can you make it happen? Okay, sure. Yeah, we'll see if we can make it happen. <laughs> That's amazing. And you spoke about how much you were learning at the time. And, and I think sometimes working in a large organization that has a lot of support, a lot of structure, uh, can be great at an early stage in your career because you just have incredible people around you that you can just learn by osmosis from. Were there any kind of mentors at that time that stand out in your memory that you, you particularly learn from or things that they discussed with you kind of stayed with you for in your career? Oddly enough, there's a couple of folks that stand out to me and I still keep in touch with them till this day. And they've given me recommendations over the years for different things. And you know, there are folks who I could pick up the phone now and say, I'm really thinking about X, what do you think? And they would give me the honest truth. And I think having somebody who will be honest with you and not only from a mentor perspective, but from a, a career champion perspective and saying, no, I don't, that's not gonna be a good fit. Or yeah, you should take that risk because the reward is gonna be on the other side. You may not see it right now, and one in particular pushed me into one of probably the hardest roles that I had at Nissan by far. He pushed me into the role and he's like, I know you're comfortable doing what you're doing. You really need to go do this. You know, this director really likes you. It's not a posted position. I think you need to go take it. And it was a super challenging role. Like I, it's not something that is in my wheelhouse, but I was purchasing parts for production to go on vehicles coming off the production line fuel parts of that like I mean everything leading up to the fuel tank and the fuel pump on the car I was purchasing it and I had no clue how to do it absolutely not a, a snitch of an idea and I learned so much about myself in that role but I also learned so much about Nissan and the, like the inner workings of manufacturing and how that fits into the bigger, broader picture of the company. And I'm so grateful that he pushed me because it, it's carried, I mean, it's carried through even to today with me. And I think actually you touched on something there, kind of pushing out of your comfort zone, taking on a new challenge. And again, I think at that earlier stage in your career, having a mentor to guide you in the right direction, but then pushing yourself like that, I think, and having that learning mindset, those things are critical to kind of develop and evolve into a leader rather than kind of remain at a certain level or kind of be complacent in a particular role. Yeah, I mean, your comfort zone will kill you, as they say. <laughs> I like that. And you, you touched on a, a, a role, a final role at Nissan that, that kind of proved to be a kind of step towards legal operations. How did you then find your way into the, the wonderful world of, of legal operations? So my final role at Nissan was in HR. And I, at that time, I'd already gotten my master's degree in organizational leadership. And I was doing some talent development, some employee engagement, retention strategy type things at Nissan. And I hit the point where I was like, Where's, where am I going to go next? What's, have I given it all I could give? And ultimately I decided I had given it all I could give 
not knowing what I was going to do, I took a little bit of a step back, went to work for a very small healthcare company locally here, doing some stuff with their IT team and some project management, project director type stuff. And I was looking for jobs, not knowing, and I saw this role at Assuring. It was a legal program manager. So I read the job description like anybody would do. And I, being local here, I knew all about Assuring um, just because it's a major private company here in town. I was like, you know, I could do that. It's got, you know, it's got a flavor of some of the things I've done over the years. Why not? You know, why not? I applied, got a call from the recruiter that day, interviewed, and in some ways, I like what Jennifer McCarran said a couple of weeks ago. I tripped and fell into legal ops. I tripped and fell into legal ops by accident, um, not knowing what I was getting into. And I'm so glad that I did. It's so interesting to hear those different paths that lead people to finding the role and, and realizing, as you said, that they've got that kind of breadth of skill set that means they're a great fit for it. What was the structure of the legal team at Asurian when you joined? When I joined, you had, I was the last hire in the legal ops team. So there were four of us at the time. And we reported into the vice president and associate general counsel over revenue contracts or commercial agreements. And then she reported up into an SVP and then we had a GC. Our GC was actually also over HR. So he was the CHRO. About a year into my role there, we did a little bit of organizational shifting. And so our team ended up migrating to the more mature kind of HR operations team in the hopes that we could leverage talent, we could gain some synergies. Obviously it was, it was a great learning opportunity. And I was able to kind of dip my feet back into HR a little bit, which is where I had been comfortable, where I came from. And then I think now since my departure, I believe the legal ops team is back under for obvious reasons. I think, you know, it just probably works a little bit better, but I learned so much from my HR colleagues there and tried to translate that over into what we were doing with our legal team. And you obviously had a grounding in organizational leadership and you had returned to college as you mentioned to complete a master's in in organizational leadership have you found that to be useful in your career in legal ops it's extremely useful i draw on my experiences from my learnings in organizational leadership every single day in some way and you don't realize it and sometimes it's a little bit through osmosis i'm involved in so many things now that i wasn't necessarily involved with an assurance since my role has evolved from my time there. And whether it's leadership, whether it's organizational development and looking at org structure and thinking about, you know, how we want our legal team to look today, tomorrow, five years from now, you can draw on that learning in so many ways. And so I'm so glad that I did it. And at the time when I was doing my master's degree, I was doing it more from a, I'm going to be an HR professional. I, that's kind of what I saw uh, at the time, but now I'm, I'm glad that maybe that I'm not. And then I'm able to take that information and really put it to a different, more practical use. And as you say, I think organizational design is such an important point that sometimes get lost in the mix in that there's a, a structure of a legal team when you join as a legal operations leader, but there's 
a vision of what the, the function should look like in the future, how work should be resourced, whether internally, externally, at what level, whether it can be automated. And, and I think when you have that alignment with the general counsel or CLO that, that shares that vision, I imagine that's incredibly powerful to have that grounding and understanding of, of how to go on that journey of, of changing the structure. It was something on a previous podcast with Sheila Dassault at Faring. I think she's done, done a lot of work on that as well. In terms of the kind of legal ops projects then at Asurian that you were involved with that you felt had the biggest impact, what do you think they were? For me, there's really three that stand out. When I joined the team there, they were just getting started. And one of which was the Office 365 migration and the use of OneDrive documents and they were in filing cabinets. This is back in the time we were still in the office, of course. You know, they were in filing cabinets. They were on people's desks. They were on the desktop. They were on different share folders and shared drives across the company. And legal was really smart in saying, you know what? We should really get a handle on this. This is going to get out of hand. So they were the first to migrate to Office 365. So our team helped lead through that migration in partnership with IT. And then we converted everyone to OneDrive. And then that fed into a broader, what I would say second huge impact for the team, which is the global document management strategy and initiative. So how we stored documents, where they were stored, who had access to them, which also leads into more of a knowledge management approach. But those two joined together were a big portion of you know my first year and a half or so there. And we decommissioned shared drives. We decommissioned SharePoint sites. We did so much work. And we had this beautiful hub that people could go to that was permissioned off and you could get easy access to things that you couldn't before. You'd have to spend hours kind of digging through folders. And then I would say lastly, this is, I mean, this is something that I still talk about is our legal portal. We had an absolutely stellar legal portal. And that was both internal and external facing to the teams. It had checklists and resources and, you know, a dynamic org chart. You could see what everybody worked on. You could contact different teams through it. We had a technology page. So we had quite a bit of technology that the legal team used outside of just Office 365. And so all the links to technology was right there. And it was this beautiful hub that also connected back into the global document management site. So you could go seamlessly from one to the other. And I think those three things had a major impact during my time there. And something actually that I think really shone a light on the importance of legal operations, the importance of the types of initiatives you just spoke about there, where there is shared knowledge, easy access to information, easy ways to collaborate and have a good system of record for data. Did you find then when the pandemic hit that really shone a light on why these initiatives were so powerful when everybody had to move remote and the department could operate in a, in a more efficient way than I imagine many that hadn't gotten to that point of maturity? We all thought, you know, we're going to be back in the office. It's going to be a week. It's going to be two weeks. It's going to be, you know, whatever it might be. And having that information already there and available meant that you didn't have to get special permission to go back to the office to grab a binder. You didn't have to get the special permission to go searching through a filing cabinet. It was there and easily accessible. But then it also drew to light some things that we may have overlooked in the scoping of that project, which was we didn't have a good system for like electronic notary. 
you know, in getting documents notarized? And was our e-sign, you know, kind of integrated into all of that? It shed the light some other things we needed to work on, which was also kind of powerful for us. Absolutely. I think has accelerated the adoption of technology and, and the kind of awareness around the impact that legal operations can make, which has been uh, fantastic, I think, for the, the wider industry. So I'm interested then uh, as to what attracted you to Contentful. So for me, it was the values. I had done my homework. I did a lot of research, you know, someone sent me the job posting, you know, in, in my network and said, Hey, I think, I think you should really take a look at this role at Contentful. And so going into it, you know, I did my homework, I did my research as much as, you know, that's publicly available you know, to anybody. And something that really stood out to me was the company values. And it really hit home for me personally. And those are, our values are something that I've, talked about with others I've talked about with friends that you know this is what I want to be and seeing that like in front of my face and then after having that conversation with the recruiter I was like man I I hope I get this job because I have found my home finally you know something really resonated and thankfully I did get the job <laughs> and you know I'm able to you know to kind of be a part of this really amazing team at Contentful and it's a smaller legal team, which is nice. I come from some really large organizations, large legal teams, and getting to build from the ground up is really cool. There's a lot to unpack there. I think you finding a place where the values of the organization aligned with your values and, and kind of, I suppose, inspired you to join. I think that's something that really resonates with us here at Bright Flag. We, we spend a lot of our time talking about our values and, and ensuring that we're, we're kind of aligned around them in everything that we do. I was having lunch today with, with Sinead Kenny. I'm not sure if you've met Sinead before, one of our longest standing members of our team. And, and we were both kind of recalling previous organizations we worked in, maybe larger law firms, where values were kind of talked about as corporate speak, but they just didn't reflect what it meant to be part of the organization. And I think when a company is built from the ground up with the values underpinning how things are done, how decisions are made, who is recruited, I think you end up with a very different organization. You do. And I think that's something that had always been missing for me personally. And, and you just said it, it's the it's on the wall, it's written, it's on the website, it's talked about, but it's not lived and it's not practiced. And that's completely opposite at Contentful. We live it, we practice it, we talk about it. It's a part of the conversation and it never dies. And that's the really neat thing about what we're doing. And I'm just so happy that I took another risk, you know, because I mean, I was comfortable at Assurian and I'm sure there would have been a career path for me there. It was a great team, really good leaders. But I'm really happy that I decided to take a different chance. And you're now in, in Contentful over a year. And what, what have the priorities been for you in the, in the first 12 months? So for me, my priorities have been really getting a handle on the foundation. Do you have to crawl before you can run? And so really understanding the process listening to our team. Yeah, it's a small team, but there's always going to be pain points. So really listening to them, talking with them, getting to know them beyond just the day-to-day -day work. We're there to strive together and work together and collaborate. And so really understanding what do we need now and what are we going to need later? And 
working with our CLO to prioritize that versus this green field of opportunity, which it is. I mean, we could do so many things, but would it matter? And would it have an impact? You're always going to have the low hanging fruit, which I think you can knock that off pretty quickly, which I think we've done a lot of that. But then there's these other big things that long-term not only transform our legal team, but they transform what we're doing with our business partners. And it aligns to the broader strategy of the company. And I think that's really what we've been focused on is pinpointing what those are. And if it takes us six months, if it takes us a year, that's okay. We can achieve it, but those are the things that really matter. And Ashley, something you touched on is how exciting it was to join and build a legal ops function. And, and I was chatting to Mateo Sanchez, who leads legal operations at Outside and is very experienced uh, like yourself about this earlier in the week. And, and we were having discussion about whether there's kind of something in the DNA of legal operations professionals where, where some people just love that that building and that phase where you're putting in place these systems and processes, you're building a longer term plan and delivering on that versus maybe a different type of role where it's more about kind of managing the status quo, where a lot of good work has already been done and maybe there's less opportunity to kind of drive change. Do you think there's something in that? There's, there's maybe different profiles of legal operations professionals? And I suspect I know which one you, you fit within. Yeah. <laughs> I do. I'm definitely a builder and definitely thrive on that unknown a little bit. And there's all of this opportunity to go after, whether it's identified or, or not. And I think that speaks to a lot of the roles I've had in my career. Oh, hey, this didn't exist before. Can you go see if this will work? Yeah, sure. I'll go see if it will work. And, you know, having that mentality of going after it and, and, proving it out and taking this hypothesis and it may not look the way that you thought it would look when you started, but you have something even better at, at the end. I really thrive in that type of environment. And yes, I think there's something in the DNA of, of the different types of legal ops professionals on where they thrive. But I think in this ecosystem that we're all in together, there's a place for all of it. 100%. I think we're just blown away by how many legal departments at an earlier and earlier stage are investing in legal operations. Colin McCarthy was telling me the other day that there's over a hundred open roles, I think at the moment that, that they're just, they're struggling, organizations are struggling to fill. So Matteo, for instance, mentioned to me that I think he was higher number three in the legal, in the legal department. So, so that, I think that is telling us that more and more, there are more of these build roles out there, but but equally, there are many organizations that have reached a point of scale where there's really interesting roles for people that 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 their skill set is more more suited to kind of improving on platforms that have already been built as well. You mentioned the kind of the low hanging fruit that a legal ops leader can kind of tackle in the first twelve months. Are there any kind of specific examples of that and things that you would intuitively just focus on when you get started in a role? I think it, it comes down to what can I take off the GC or the CLO's plate? Great example of that in, in my world was running our all legal team meetings. Seems very simple, but it's a low hanging fruit that she shouldn't really have to worry about. You know, setting the agenda, getting the guest speakers if we're going to have those, ensuring that you know, it's in the proper format. In addition to that, you know, I, I'm part of the legal leadership team there. 
And so running the legal leadership team meeting is also a part of my role and really asking her, what can I do to make your life easier? And I think getting that alignment with your, your GC or your CLO will prove out to be beneficial if you're going to go tackle these bigger, more impactful you know, projects, whether that's CLM or that's e-billing or you know, knowledge management or whatever it might be. I think if you start with the little things and understanding what's important to your, to your CLO or your GC, most of the time that's the low-hanging fruit. And you touched on it there, how important that alignment with the CLO is in essentially being their right-hand person that is enabling that longer-term change, but finding those kind of incremental improvements along the way, giving lawyers back time, taking things off their desk, enabling the legal services to be delivered to the business more quickly. We've spoken about how important your training in organizational leadership has been. Do you have any kind of guiding principles that inform your approach to leadership? So anyone who's ever worked with me, been on a team with me, knows that I am a happy, positive person. That's just my personality. And sometimes it can be obnoxious. Just ask Trisha White, who works for me. She'll be like, you're so obnoxious. Why are you so happy? (laughs) But one of my, I guess, guiding principles of leadership that I really lean in on is I have this phrase, and it's put your positive pants on. It's so easy to go to the negative. And as you know, a lot of what we do is disruptive. It's changing the way things, you know, sometimes have been for a very long time. It can have setbacks, there's roadblocks, and it's so easy to dip into the negative energy. And when I see that kind of happening within my team, I'm like, okay, let's stop, take take a breath. Let's put our positive pants on. What went right? And let's take what the went right and pivot into, okay, here are our opportunities. They may, be, they may seemingly come off as failures and that's okay. Failing is okay, but they're really opportunities. What can we improve upon? What did we learn as a result of, nah, maybe it didn't go exactly the way we had hoped it would go, you know? And so I really leaned in on that. I'm also a big believer in like the servant leadership model. I would never ask my team to do something that I wouldn't do with them, right alongside them. If it's mopping the floors, we'll go mop the floors. That's okay. And I think that helps build trust. And there's a level of vulnerability as a leader I think you need to have with your team and a level of transparency. Yes, there's things you can't say and things you can't do, but I think the more transparent you can be and the more vulnerable you are, the more trust that you have with the team. So, I couldn't agree more and I am definitely going to steal the put your positive pants on uh, I will send you a, I made magnets so I have magnets <laughs> I made them for my team at Assurian I still Trisha still has hers because she came um, over from Assurian um, kind of with me I still have one I will get you a magnet out I will I it will go on it will go on the board in our our, our meeting room uh, absolutely I love it and I suppose one of the other really important skill sets for a legal operations leader is, is change management. How have you gone about developing your skills and understanding how to approach change management with legal teams? So early on in my career when I was at Nissan, it's very much a kind of take a hold of your own career, kind of work your own path. 
and there's a lot of opportunity, a lot of programs there that you can dip into. And so one of which they have is, I would say, akin to like a Six Sigma green belt. So I, I took advantage of that program. And of course, that teaches you some level of change management. And then I was involved with programs that were very kind of out there, very different, very transformational, also teaches you some level of practical change management. And then when I got to Assurian, it was no different. It was a level of change that the team there hadn't experienced before. And I think listening to your stakeholders is the biggest thing that you can do. Understanding them, what impacts them, what's their interest and how those interests can align. A little bit beyond that, for me, I actually did the ACMP change management certification. So the, the CCMP, which is a very structured methodology of change, but yeah, and there's all flavors of it out there. However, I think getting some sort of rigor in my brain around this is a method that is tried and true that I can follow, even if it's a little bit flexible in how we get there, it gives you some level of foundation to work upon. And the Japanese automotive industry was essentially the birthplace of Six Sigma. Basically nowhere better that you could have gotten that, that grounding. And, and as you say, I think it can be really helpful and powerful to have a framework and a, and a skill set to refer to and then build upon it, as you said, working on projects, seeing different environments, whether in Nissan, in Ashurian, or, or now I'm sure, and, and being able to kind of apply what you've learned in those environments. But certainly Six Sigma is, is, is one that I'm sure has been incredibly useful. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I often reference back to, you know, root cause analysis, Pareto analysis, you know, all the different tools that that help you get to, you know, solutionizing on something. There's a Japanese phrase called Kaizen, which is continuous improvement. And I always kind of keep that in the back of my mind. Had I not ever worked for Nissan, I don't know that that would have been something that would have stuck with me so, you know, so long. And I suppose the other thing, Ashley, that always stands out to me about you is that you consistently give back to the legal operations community, including speaking at clock events. Why is it important for more experienced legal operations leaders like yourselves to share their knowledge and, and kind of pay it forward to the next generation? Because I think in some ways it's been paid forward to me. And so there's no one right way to be a legal ops professional. We all have these wonderful ideas and ways of working and projects that have been successful within our own companies. I think there's this level of, okay, this is what worked for me. It's not a best practice by any stretch of the imagination. It might be a better practice, but let me share that with you in the hopes that even if you get one thing out of what I say, you can take it and pivot and morph into something great for your company or for your own personal development. And I think it's really important for whether you've been in corporate for a year, whether you've been in corporate for 15 years, 20 years, whatever it might be, you've been in legal, you've not been in legal. It's important to give back and share the knowledge with others because we're all just trying to do something really great together. And we can all learn from one another. And so why not, you know? Absolutely. And I think it really is a community. And I think 
legal departments in reality are not competing directly with each other and there is that opportunity to share <laughs> learnings develop i think you, you really set the bar in in your approach to that and how much of, of your time that you give i know volunteering particularly in education is is also something that you're you're really passionate about why has that played such an important role in your life so i grew up in a very small town here in tennessee very rural and opportunities were not that great. I mean, you, if you graduated high school in a, in a lot of cases, that was it. You know, you didn't go to college. My parents both went to college much later in life after I was in school. And so for me, education, not only was it kind of my ticket out of the small town, but it was also my way of, you know, improving myself. And I believe that volunteering in education, you know, is a way for me to help others see that, both where I'm from and or otherwise, you know, where I'm living. And I think there's just so much power in education and we don't value sometimes our educators enough. I have some folks that really stand out in my mind that have been so impactful to me as teachers and professors that if it weren't for them, I'm not exactly sure kind of what path I would have taken. Um, they were very pivotal at times when I needed them the most and they didn't even know it necessarily. And so if I can do that for somebody else, if I can mentor someone or help lead someone in a, a path that gets them you know, somewhere better than they are today, then I wanna be a part of it. Well, I, I don't know where you find all the hours in the day, Ashley, and that's an incredibly admirable use of your time and again paying it forward in, in a different context for the next generation but when you aren't building legal operations programs or volunteering what do you enjoy doing in your spare time so i have a almost three-year-old aussie doodle so she is the light of my life she's just adorable and then i don't know if you saw this but when i was in college i worked at a bakery i was a bakery manager and then kind of in between roles in Nissan and Asurian, I taught chocolate making classes at Goo Goo Cluster, which is a local um, candy um, that we have here in Tennessee. It's the world's first combination candy bar. So I taught chocolate classes there. And as part of the chocolate classes, we did like wine tastings. And so I have found myself over the years enjoying like teaching, teaching others about food and wine. And so in a couple of weeks, I'm actually gonna start my wine education um, certification. <laughs> and I don't know what I'll do with it yet, but I'm very excited about it. I did not know we had so many shared interests. I'm a big fan of chocolate and wine. <laughs> and uh, I'm certainly going to be coming to you for wine recommendations. And if you want to sneak one of those candy bars in with the, the magnet that you're sending, yeah. by, I won't complain. <laughs> I'd be more than happy to send you a Goo Goo Cluster. I have been eating them since I was a child. Like my grandmother and I would actually walk to um, the dollar store. So Dollar General is a local company here. They're all over. We walked to the dollar store and my treat was to get a Goo Goo Cluster. Fast forward, you know, a few years later and I'm teaching chocolate classes there. It was really surreal. 
That's amazing. My my grandmother actually had a bakery, and I think I may that maybe the cause of the sweet tooth running through my entire family. I'm also extremely jealous. Your dog sounds amazing. We have two young girls at home, and I tell my wife until they're at least seven, where that's enough. We can't, the dog will have to wait until then. The grandparents of dogs, they can play with them. Yeah. Yeah, we actually got her before the pandemic. On, you know, oddly enough, in January of 2020 not knowing that the world was going to shut down, but it's just been so much fun to have her around. And then last year, something else happened. I got engaged. Oh, congrats. So planning a wedding also in my spare time. I, I think you're going to have to start giving lessons in Six Sigma and, and just time management because I don't know how you how you fit it all in, but that is incredibly exciting news and a fantastic way to end the podcast, Ashley. So thank you so much for joining us today. I really, really enjoyed our chat. It's been a lot of fun and, and I think I've learned a huge amount myself. So really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Alex. I'm Alex Kelly, host of the In-House Outliers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Brightflag, an AI-powered legal operations platform where corporate legal departments gain visibility into operations, maximize productivity and engage with outside counsel strategically. If you like this episode, then you can find more information in our show notes. If you want to hear more, then you can also find more episodes at brightflag.com forward slash legal hyphen operations hyphen podcast. Thanks again for listening to the In-House Outliers podcast. We'll see you again next time.